like 60 something here (laughs) we got like probably 14 inches of snow so far so got ice literally compare our situations here (laughs) it rained like all day tuesday and it basically kept raining from tuesday till end of thursday but it just got cold enough tuesday night that it turned to snow for two days straight so it was ice underneath all of the snow which sucks I have ice in my trees still because it's only 27 degrees Fahrenheit here, but like it's causing chaos. Like the city of Memphis declared a state of emergency. This is an emergency, like regular weather that we get every year. Well, kind of. There's 140,000 people without power. Okay, that's quite a bit. Is your power company like Texas? They're just like, we don't care about weatherproofing. Well, they're pretty good. They sent me a text, which they've never done before. Hey, we know the like a storm's coming and we're like preparing for it. There's a tree. I keep looking out my window. My neighbor's tree across the street, it's huge. And like a huge branch just fell off of it and blocked the whole street. So I'm like two houses from the end of the street. I keep watching cars get there and then have to like try and make a U-turn, which they can't usually do in one turn. So I just, I'm having fun. It's snow and ice. So they can just hit the handbrake and like <laughs> easily 360 there. We got no snow. I should clarify. We only got ice. Our warning was a literal ice storm warning. Yeah. Kind of well, like in Arizona. Yeah. It's freezing here. I can't stand it. You look like you're cold. I am cold. It's 60. You have your heat on? Poor thing. Yes, I have my heat on. I didn't know if you had heat in Arizona. thought maybe you just had air conditioning. Nah, I do have heat, <laughs> thankfully. Okay. We haven't talked about it on the show, but you start work with me. One day, by the time it's airs, we will hopefully have worked together for two weeks. Hopefully you won't have quit by then. Yes. Or been fired. Yes. I start work at Podia on Monday, the 7th. Coming on as our senior react engineer. Yeah. Well, maybe it'll be less than a week. Oh, that was the one thing you told me. Yeah. I was very adamant about that. (laughs) I asked what technologies are you not excited about that use? And that was the only one you said. So, yeah, I don't like React. Well, okay. We use Flipper yeah. though. You like Flipper? Oh, I like Flipper. And so let's flip this conversation to our guest today. Our work is done. I'll let someone else pick it up from here. Yeah. We've got John Nudemaker on the show today. Finally, you emailed me like, I don't know how long ago, and I'm the worst at using my inbox as a to do list. So I saved it in my inbox. And I was like, when I have time, I'm going to sit down and reply to you. And then it was months later and I'm like, oh no, I never invited you on. So welcome, John. Thank you. Yeah. I just assumed you didn't like me. So it's fine. It's all right. I've just <laughs> oh been sad God. that many months. I feel so uh, seen well, right now. So do you want to give yourself an introduction, what you've built and been working on and all that stuff? Yeah, sure. Currently I'm working on two things and another side project. But the main thing is the box house sports. So it's, I don't know, I would explain it like a content management system for social media graphics, but like right now aimed at sports. So you can put in text and images and things like that, but like you can't make the logo bigger. You can't move things around. What colors can be locked down, fonts. It allows athletics, a college and high school mostly right now 
to like stay on brand, but let students at games update stuff. So, and it's shockingly going really well. I never would have guessed it was, I remember when my friends started it, I was like, you guys are crazy. This is a terrible idea, but it's going. And then the other thing that I'm working on is Flipper Cloud, which is just like a attempt to, Flipper is like my favorite open source project I've ever worked on. And I was like, somehow I should just find a way to be able to work on this more. And the easiest way was like, well, if I actually like get paid for it. So I was like, how could I do that? It was like 2017 when I was at GitHub still. And I was like, okay, I'm definitely done here. I don't like big companies a whole lot. How am I going to transition out? Got to have something. So I started working on Flipper and then went through different periods where I didn't work on it a ton, but now it's the last year or so. It's been a pretty solid quarter to half of my time. So those are the two main ones. And then I've gotten insanely into watches lately. And I'm not going to bore you about watches all day because we're here to talk about Ruby. I've started a, a side project around watches and just keeping track of them and sharing the history across owners eventually and stuff like that. Oh, that's, that is really cool. We'll have, to, we'll have to talk about some of those, but I wanted to point out that you probably most likely like to party hard. Is that right? That's very, very true. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> Not with emoji anymore. Cause I got in a lot of trouble when I added an emoji to the party hard. Cause I got I remember some that. version of, yeah, Linux does not like partying hard with emojis and it was messing up gem installs. And I broke the internet for a little while, at least people who use HTTP party. So that's amazing. Probably since I started Rails, I'm pretty sure I've used HTTP party since the very beginning, some point making my first API integration, I'm sure. Yeah, I would just say, I don't know, maybe the thing you're most famous for, I would figure. Like, it's used everywhere, I feel Probably, like. yeah. Sorry, okay. I was going to say, what blew my mind was that we've talked, you and I, like on Twitter and stuff before, had no idea that was yours. <laughs> have also been using, since I started using Rails, and it wasn't until like a couple of months ago, I like put two and two together, and I was like, that rules. <laughs> oh, that's funny. Yeah, that project is super old. I even tried, at one point, I like gave it away, and Sandro maintained it for a couple of years. And then eventually he was like, ah, I think I'm kind of done. And I was like, okay. So I took it back and I'm glad I did because it's just kind of a fun old thing. And like, it's just stable. It sits there. And like once in a while, now it's just like the really obscure things that come in. It's well, I need to adjust this PEM file on this version of something. And I'm just like, ah, okay, accept merge. I don't, or maybe this one isn't a good idea. Does it break anything for anyone historically? No. Okay. Then yes, let's just pull it in and put out a new patch. It's still not even 1.0. It's probably a decade yeah, old. 0.20. <laughs> it's going to be like, yeah. was it Rake or something that's 0.70 or? First release here was July 25th, 2009. So that's old school. Nice. Yeah. 160, that's, that's almost 166 million downloads though. That's incredible. I don't know what other ones have. I've never really looked at the downloads. So here's a reference for you. You're at okay. 166 million. Okay. Rails is at 327 million. So you're half wow. Rails popularity. I would never have guessed that. That's pretty insane. That's mind blowing. That's a yeah, crap load of downloads. I was trying to come up with like something cool. Like I was going to, in my office somewhere, like behind me, I was going to do a couple like blocks of code or like a couple of digital screens that I could like change to be like, like the flipper logo or blocks of code or something cool like that. And I was trying to set what code to put in it. I think now it has to be HD party. One of my favorite things in that is, I don't know if you've ever looked at the code, but the HD party in the code has a basement module. And the basement module is actually how the HD party dot get and dot post and like those methods, it's how that works. So like the basement module includes the top level module and then somehow the top level delegates to it. One of my buddies did it and he thought it was really funny that it was 
party in the basement. So yeah, that's one of my favorite things about that project, that and obviously the post-install message, which I very often get hate about, but staying strong so far. Yeah. I mean, at this point, you're half as famous as DHH. So that's pretty cool, right? (laughs) I have zero race cars. So what's your middle initial? C. JCN. All right. That's what we'll refer to you now (laughs) in the show. I feel like I should have changed it to something with an N that just so it could be JNN or I just, that, you need. That's what it is now. JNN. There you I don't go. really care. <laughs> I mean, I'm sure you have a beautiful middle name, but I don't care anymore. That's what we're doing. JNN. I don't know that it's, I mean, Carl, it's not insanely beautiful, but uh, now that yeah. someone can hack my identity, thanks for that. So yeah, no problem. My middle name is Michael and no one can tell me what my first or middle name. I think I was named after an actor in the eighties. So it's not much better <laughs> over here. My family hates me. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> We should ask for those people who don't know, what is Flipper? Oh, yeah, sure. So Flipper is right now, it's for just for feature flags. So feature flags are becoming pretty popular. A decade ago, not very many people used them. For me, what I consider like a feature flag is just a way to control. It's just an if statement that you can control at runtime. I feel like the easiest way to think about it is just instead of it being fixed in your code, you can just while the app is running without rebooting it, without deploying it, without any of that kind of stuff, you can just hit a button and bam, the if statement, instead of returning true, returns false. Your whole application can just you know change and do cool things because of that. So that's kind of what they are for me is just control at, at runtime. And for me, it, I think what I got into it was when I worked on Words of Friends. It was like a Scrabble-like game. I worked on that in 2000, I don't know, nine or 10. And basically all I, I was saying earlier, I wrote like JavaScript for like two or three years. Following that, all I did was write memcache for like two or three years. And that was on that project. And we couldn't roll things out. Every time we tried to deploy new caching or any of that kind of stuff, the whole app would just go down. And finally, after like a third time in a row of trying to get out this new caching stuff and it had failing because of the cold cache, I was talking with one of the other guys in the project and he was like, what if we tried this thing called rollout? And so I was like, okay. So we started using rollout and then Flipper was basically just born from just some of the pains we had with rollout, which mostly was just like, it, it was very tied to Redis. It's not anymore, but it was at one point, it was tied to Redis and Redis was always the thing that failed for us first because it was the, the smallest piece of infrastructure. And so we kind of basically like rewrote it to support, you know, memcache in front of Redis and all these other things. And I was like, what if we just built something with like a, just a, maybe a little different API, a little better, in my opinion, that could support any backend. And so that's kind of where it was born. But it's, yeah, it's basically just if statements that you can control at runtime. Yeah. And I've gotten so much benefit out of this library over the years, especially because it really is what allowed my team to embrace trunk-based development, which I am now a huge fan of not having to deal with the branches and stuff and using Flipper and their feature flags and, you know, writing tests. And then at the end of the sprint, everything's turned on. You can go back, remove them, and it's all nice and clean. I, I love it. That's awesome. I feel like Flipper is one of those really weird projects where I don't get a lot of feedback on it. At the time I was working on HTTP Party or the Twitter gem or stuff like that, I was going to conferences. And so I'd run into people and they'd be like, oh, I like your gem or, you know, things like that. And I'm like, oh, cool. Like now I know, like I'm not being completely terrible or something. Flipper, like I started working on that like 2015. And at that point I was just like, I'm done traveling. I mean, I haven't gone to a conference in a long time. And so like, I don't get that feedback and people don't just say, oh yes, I like this. It's really rare that someone just posts, oh, I just like this gem or this code or whatever. And so I don't hear that. So then when I do, it's really exciting, especially because I just love Flipper. But it's great to hear that because that's the whole point is to free those merge conflicts and all the problems that you have when you are trying to have these branches all over the place. 
I'm at the point now where like, even just working by myself on an app just for myself, I still have feature flags in it because I just want to be able to like turn things on and off and stuff like that. And what's also really great about it is you can turn specific features on for specific users. So we also got a ton of benefit out of that of being like, okay, well, this feature isn't really ready. It's been tested, right? But we want to get maybe a few beta users in here. Instead of rolling our own thing for that, we just use Flipper. It's great. Yeah, that's really handy. I know for us, it can be like user, it can be an org, it can be whatever kind of actor you want. And so like at BoxOut, we use it for orgs a lot. So we'll be like, okay, we know there's like these three orgs that are power users and like this feature works for them. It'll work for everybody. And so we just always let them in first. It starts with us and, you know, we can test it and then we let in other people like them. And then we can be like, okay, now we're going to give it to premium people first and then plus and then basic. And just to be able to like gradually gain confidence, that's what branches kind of allow you to do is like gain confidence basically by like, oh, this is all working on my machine. So you feel more confident. And that's what feature flags let you do, but in production. We've been using groups recently to do kind of a stair-step rollout, even within the company. Mm. So like when we're developing a new feature, usually it's only available to just like the two devs working on it. So those will just be like individual actors. Mm -hmm. But then we've defined groups for like marketing and support and developers and like, I guess, product, which would be like the CEO or the product designer. And that's been nice because we can kind of slowly let people within the company get familiar with the feature. And then we can either do 50% of everyone gets it or just turn it on for everyone. And it's, it really is a game changer because it's also allowed us, I assume this is what the term like trunk development means, but we've been able to like ship very small features into the app because nobody can access them without this feature flag. It saved me from getting fired for like 60 file PRs and things like that. So it's been pretty clutch. That's going to go like on the website now. Save me from being fired. Yes. Yes, I'm here for it. That's awesome. It's really great to hear. And I love groups. We got a new thing coming out called like rules or expressions. I think they're going to replace groups and be more changeable at runtime because groups are defined at boot time basically in your code. And so I think that stuff will make it so that the group stuff like you're talking about will be even easier. I was just going to mention the trunk-based development for people who don't know. Trunk-based development, basically, you know, there's Git flow workflows where you may have a development branch and then you have different teams. And then as they're working on stuff, they merge them into a development branch or maybe they're even merging into a sprint branch that gets merged into a development branch that eventually gets merged into main. And it's a disaster. And there's lots of merge conflicts. And I find that when you're doing something like that, you spend a lot more time messing with Git than you really should. And it's just kind of painful. Trunk-based development refers to using a single branch called the trunk to resist any pressure to create no long-running branches, no massive PRs. And what it is, is basically every single time there's a PR, it's pointing to main. And the idea is that main is always deployable consistently forever. And that if it's not, that's a breakdown in your process. And so where Flipper kind of comes into this is that you continue merging your things into main, but you put them behind feature flags. So that main continues to be deployable even when you have features that haven't been tested yet or QA'd yet. I can't handle like having huge PRs anymore. It still happens sometimes just naturally when there's something that like, you're like, well, it'd just be easier to have this be a little bit bigger and it's fine because of X reason. But I feel like that's like rare now. For me, it's always just really small. The smallest chunk that I can get in, if I get like a migration started and a little bit of functionality, like a day's worth of work, put it behind a flag, ship it out and move on to the next chunk. And honestly, what's great about it is it flushes it out of your brain. 
Like as programmers, like one of the hardest thing is all the stuff that you like keep up balancing in your brain. And somebody comes in and starts talking about whatever kitty cats or something. And then like you lose all that context. The nice thing about this is when you're constantly merging that stuff, I feel like a lot of that just kind of goes away. You don't have to keep that in your head, which means that you can move faster because you're not weighed down by like, oh, I got to remember like when I deploy, you know, to do these four things after it or something like that. Because you can do those kind of individually as you go. Yeah. I would like to hear more about the Flickr rules stuff that you're working on because my CTO, Jamie, I know like you and him have chatted some. He was actually telling me when I told him we were chatting today, he said that you were doing some interesting stuff with that. Are you in a place where you can tell us a little more about that? Yeah, sure. The basic premise is like, if we're going to have like a cloud service, two things. One, if you're going to have a cloud service, you can't really have Ruby blocks as part of that because how does that work in Go? I mean, yeah, you can just rewrite the block in Go or you can rewrite the block in Python. They have those mechanisms, but how do you keep those in sync? And how do you keep the rules the same? What if you have a Go project and a Ruby project talking to the same feature flags? How do you make those blocks identical in the languages and sync you know, deployment of those and stuff? So that's a huge problem. And then the other problem in general is just, it's all about controlling stuff at runtime. And that's not runtime. That's like load time, boot time, whatever you want to call when the app starts up time. And so you lose control. You can't change. Like, what if you want to add one more person to that group? Well, maybe you for your case with adding people to marketing, maybe you have this idea of a marketing role. And when you add someone to it, then when the group gets checked, they just say, do they have this role? And so by that method, you end up with control at runtime. But the downside is then you had to build all that functionality. Flipper didn't do it for you. And so that kind of stinks. So those were the two problems I was kicking around. And one of my buddies was starting to, he was just kind of curious to like work on something for fun. And so he was like, hey, like, I know you're doing stuff on Flipper. Like, do you care if I like just hack on it and see if I can come up with anything cool to work on? And I was like, yeah, I was like, I'll pay you. And he was like, no, I don't want to make it weird. I don't want to owe you something. I just, I'd rather just like, if I have time, I'll work on it. If I don't, and he's super thoughtful. He's like the kind of person who's like, well, I'm sure you've thought about this before, but did you consider doing X, which would solve all of your problems? And then I'm like, I mean, I did not consider X. No, that's, that changes everything. Oh my gosh. Like I'm going to have to give you like, a chunk of the company or something for this, even though you, and so the basic idea was just like, what he called it originally was like property comparison. So right now with Flipper, you have an actor ID. And so the actor ID is whatever user semicolon one. And so it's like, here's the Ruby object model. And then here's the integer ID. And so you can kind of reconstitute, it's like a global ID in Rails, whatever that stuff is. And so that's what all it has right now. So what he was saying is you should have properties. So like they can have lots of properties. It's just a flat map hash of on one side, you have strings and they're the name of the property. On the other side, you can have primitives like string, null, integer, anything that's supported across every language. It doesn't have to be array. You could support array and set. You don't have to do that. Like you could just have it be the very basic primitives and not the collections. That's fine too. So if you do that, then you could do comparisons against those properties. So instead of doing is the actor in a set of known actors like we currently do, So that would say like, well, you add user semicolon one to the set of actors. And so now it's enabled for them. Instead of doing that, you just have like a logic thing that's property flipper ID, flipper underscore ID equals some like user. And I was like, oh, that's really cool. So it kind of gives you like, just at that basic level, it gives you a way to say this property equals this other thing. And I was like, but that's not enough to like get rid of groups. And so I was like, I can see how this would be good, but like, how do you go farther and really get rid of the group? need at all. Because people have stuff in groups like what plan is someone on, which has to query the database or like all these other things. And he's also, that scares me. He's like, I don't like this idea of like some block in some thread, in some context, just all of a sudden kicking off database queries and doing all these terrible things. 
And the main reason I did it that way was to be lazy. Like I didn't want to invoke the group query unless it was enabled for the feature. And, and so it was like a, it was a lazy loading, you know, it was, it was a feature, but that's also like, you know, everything's a trade-off. So he's like, what if you just trade it off? And instead of doing dynamic blocks, you just said, here's the properties up front and you'll have a computation that takes time up front to generate all those properties. Like, is the user in this plan or is the org that they're in this plan or like what age are they or what's their email address? And then you apply that through the logic. And so like the logic can be, it can be equal, not equal, greater than, less than, all the normal like primitive logic comparisons in a set, not in a set or include, you know, not include stuff like that. And additionally, if you just add two other concepts of any and all, then you can attach multiples of those together. So you could say like, if you want to do, let's say, replace like the actors in a set, you can literally just say, you know, like the property flipper ID is included in like this array of flipper IDs. And so now you don't even need that other gate or any of that kind of stuff. Or if you wanted to do, let's say you have a group that's like marketing. So what you would do is when you have that user, you'd have a, a flipper underscore properties method and it would return a hash. And inside of there, you'd have, here's the ID, here's the model type. You could say like marketing, true or false. So marketing would be the key and true or false would be the thing. Or you could say like roles and roles could be an array that had marketing or had engineering or had both of those or whatever. But you kind of shift from just checking like Ruby methods in a block and returning true or false to pre-computing like, does someone have a certain role or does someone have a certain property that's true or false and stuff like that? And if you do that, you can then pump it through this thing that's basically, I never learned Lisp. I feel like I was supposed to because that's like what everybody, you know, Lisp, Smalltalk, all that kind of stuff that you're supposed to know that stuff. I guess I'm not quite old enough. I'm pretty old, but not quite old enough to have learned all that. And so that's basically what it is. It's like this little, you have functions and the functions can be chained by doing like any and all. So if you want to say, are they an admin or is there flipper ID in the percentage of users that should be enabled? So like 50% of users. So what you do for that is you'd have a, an any on the outside, like wrapping it. And then the first condition would be like admin equals true. So property admin equals true. The second condition would be like flipper ID, percentage, modulus, whatever you want to call the thing equals 50 or something like that. And so to compare it at runtime, it would just say, pass in the properties, call this function any or all. So in this case, it's any, which means it's this or this or this. And so that's kind of the idea. So that all sounds kind of maybe like boring or complex, but what you end up with is this can completely change. You don't even need the other gates anymore. You can just use this expression gate and now you can change everything at runtime. You can change like who's in the marketing group. All that kind of stuff can happen actually because like what we want to do eventually like in Flipper Cloud is like each part of these expressions can be saved off into like a chunk, kind of like AWS policies and stuff like that, but not terrible. So you could say like, here's the flipper actor IDs in the marketing group. And here's the flipper actor IDs in like the engineering group. And then if you want to like reuse that on a feature, you can just say, enable this for like engineering. And it, because that's just like a logic thing, it just can insert that logic right in there and use it. So that's kind of the gist. I can send like a, I have an example in a branch. The branches learn the rules because at one time I was a family guy fan and Stewie yelled, learn the rules, I think in something. And so for some reason that's stuck in my head. So now it's always learn the rules. So learn the rules is the branch and I've got like a expressions file in the examples area where it basically re-implements all the existing gates using expressions in a pretty simple way. And so that's basically the idea. Because the cool thing is if you have that, if you just have like primitive data types and 
very primitive logic comparisons and inclusions and methods that any language can recreate or already has built in, then you're immediately cross-platform, which solves the first problem of like Go and Ruby Prox and Python lambdas and stuff like that. And it also solves the second problem of how do I change more things at runtime without having to manage that in my own database? How does Flipper enable me to do that more without having JSON B column on every actor or other things like that? Does that make sense? It makes sense. It's really fascinating. Do you need webhooks in your application and wish your webhooks were as intuitive as Stripe's? It's a lot more than just sending a JSON payload to your customer's URL. Hook Relay to the rescue. It handles both inbound and outbound webhooks for your application. It records what was sent or received so you and your customers can diagnose when things go wrong. Speaking of things going wrong, webhooks are automatically retried with exponential backoff so you're not overwhelming the receiving servers. No matter what happens, you'll have the peace of mind that your webhooks will be delivered. With Hook Relay, you get to save time while also having powerful, scalable webhook processing that the experts maintain for you. Go to hookrelay.dev to get started and check webhooks off your to-do list. You also kind of like answered some questions that I just implicitly had about how some of the percentage and stuff works. So no, that was really detailed. Very good. I appreciate it. Yeah, no problem. The really cool thing is it's literally like a little mini language. We'll have a UI. Obviously, we'll make it so that you don't have to learn. Like we'll say like, what do you want to do? You want to just add an actor to this feature? You do this. And like you do that, but under the hood, it gets stored in this data structure that's basically a nested array. The first thing is a function call and the second thing is all the arguments for it. And so it's just this nested call that you just do all the way down and then it says turtles all the way down or whatever. And if you can kind of learn some of those things, you can literally program anything at runtime. You can do all kinds of stuff. And we can do stuff like where we add this other idea of like controls or config. Every app has limits. It's like, well, how many like courses can someone have? Or how many talks can they upload to speaker deck or stuff like that? And so we would always have like a JSONB column. We'd have like a default setting, an environment variable. So if the environment variable is set, it goes to that. Otherwise it goes to the default. And then we have a JSONB on the user table. And if there's one in there, that overrides that. And like all these things to just change one number. And I'm like, what if that number could just be in Flipper and go through the same property rules? And it's, well, if you're in engineering, then you get an upload limit that's this. And if you're in marketing, you get an upload limit like this. So that'll be down the road, but this sets the base for that. That's awesome. That all happens Flipper Cloud, right? That's separate from Flipper open source. That's all open source. Yeah. So really? like, I mean, yeah. So what we're going to do is basically this is an open source project. So that's what it's always going to be. The only thing that's not open source is cloud and cloud is basically like permissions and organization and a central place for like analytics and collecting at some point and like convenience around those things. So like the open source UI will just be, maybe it's just literally like a JSON text field for expressions. I don't know, something like that. Or maybe the the community makes something better or maybe we do just for fun. But then the cloud UI will be like, literally it'll just be like point and click to do anything. You won't even maybe even know or understand how the representation of the data structure and stuff like that. So that's, I think, where the separation will be. So the cloud will be like the convenience on top of it. I'm not going to do like a separate, I think maybe Psychic does that. I don't have anything against it. I, I What Mike has done is amazing. Maybe it's just easier for me to make a web app than to like manage gem servers and, and other, it's probably easy to do those things. I just haven't done them or like do different, like, uh, I don't know anything about licensing. Like I'm like MIT because MIT seems really, everybody uses it. So why not? So yeah, I, I just don't know licensing and I don't know some of the stuff that Mike's doing. And so from my standpoint, I'm just like, I'll just put cherries on top on the the cloud side and 
either people will find that valuable or they won't. I think they will. And I think at some point it'll be a no-brainer. Like if you use Flipper, you'll just use that as well too. But obviously we have to figure out all the pricing and all the features that people would want that are harder to do in the open source version. Like supporting an audit log is hard in an open source version for every potential adapted API. I don't want to rebuild the audit log for every single data store. I'd rather just build it once. And if you need an audit log, build it yourself using the instrumentation or just use cloud. That's kind of the goal. So all this stuff, all the rules and expressions will all be open source. It'll be in it, usable. It'll be in the the UI as well. Maybe just not as pretty. And then cloud will just have like a nicer, more convenient version where you can save pieces out and reuse them. And maybe three features use the same like engineering group as enabled, but you can actually in cloud just add to the engineering group and then it adds them to all those things. Stuff like that, that would just be convenient. Does cloud have like metrics around what feature flags are being hit? Because that was always the thing that I ran into. Is, oh, it would be great to know if anyone's actually hitting this flag because I don't know if it's on or not. It does. It's not even in beta. So it's, it's basically in just for noons, kind of my nickname. It's not technically JNN yet. So eventually it'll be JNN. But I literally in the code, I was like, turn on cloud instrumentation. And I was like, only do this if you know what you're doing and you're not me. So you don't know what you're doing or something that's stupid like that in a comment. <laughs> so I have client-side instrumentation working, the whole pipeline. That's what I wrote this project called Brow recently for. It was like a little before Christmas, I think. It is a project that like just makes it easy to like shove an event into a background thread and then send it up in batches to a URL, like endpoint, with extra information about like the environment and things like that. And it will get your events there by the sweat of its brow. So that's where the name come from. And also I'm a LeBron fan and he plays with Anthony Davis, who is the brow. And it was short. I mean, at this point, gem names, if you can get a four-letter gem name, you're balling out. So yeah, that's where Brow came from. And then that, so there is client-side instrumentation. I think it's maybe merged into Flipper because it was one of the eight projects that was open in my head and I just had to close the loop. And I was like, what if somebody uses this? The worst case scenario is I'll just use Flipper to shut it off until I'm ready for the the throughput because it is a lot of data. Because every Flipper check on every page, it doesn't matter if you batch it into a thousand events. You're still, I mean, GitHub, when I left GitHub, I mean, I don't even know how long ago now, four years ago or something, they were doing billions of Flipper checks a day. That would be literally like billions of rows in a database table somewhere. So that will obviously be something that we'll have to like either condense client side with the data that you'd want to know. When was this last used? And then maybe every minute or hour or something like that, instead of storing every single raw event. But I'm going to try to take the whole raw thing and, and just see if it's too costly to do like that. So that stuff's working. I wrote a whole bunch of stuff on Postgres partitioning and I did a bunch of stuff from scratch to basically partition that table by day for now and hope that GitHub doesn't sign up. Or if they do, then obviously I'd have a bigger problem. And then writing rollup reports hourly so that I can do some time zone adjustments and stuff to show people. The same way we did uh, traffic graphs on GitHub when we did that five or 10 years ago. So there'll be hourly reports. That'll give us enough to say, here's the true count, the false count, which will give us a percentage. And when was it last hit would be what's the last hourly rollup that exists for this feature, the maximum. That would be the last hour that it was hit in, which is usually enough for people so yeah, that stuff's all coming too. That's one of the aid is so it's like rules and expressions, client-side configuration, config controls of like just general config, like strings, integers, not just true, false, but giving more power to change other things at runtime like that. We already have the the sync mechanism with cloud to say, here's how we get all the data to you client side so that you can evaluate some expression in a way that is at your local network's performance, not at like you talking to us. You're partitioned away from us, so your availability isn't affected. So if we've already got that all down and we've got storing data in, in as a source of truth for you, 
synchronizing it in cloud and permissions around that, then let's start putting more things through that pipe, like config controls and stuff like that. This is wonderful. This is all the stuff I wanted to know about. But before we start to wrap up, I do want to ask about this watch app that you're like building. I don't own watches, but it was like, oh yeah, someone could track the history of like owners and their watch. And I was like, that piqued my interest. So I'd just like to hear more about that. If you thought you were short on time before, now you're really short on time. Are these watch jokes short on time? (laughs) No, that's hilarious. I was not trying to pun, but now I'm going to use that as a pun intentionally. So thank you for that. I follow the dad on Instagram, so I'm a big fan of puns. I've always kind of liked watches. I never, I mean, maybe like a hundred bucks or maybe a couple hundred bucks or something like that. Black Friday deals, stuff like that. And then I don't know. It was like, I mean, all of us, like as software people, we appreciate like craftsmanship, like the idea of like you're spending time on things that people will probably never see, but you hope that somehow comes through in just a general feeling for them when they use the software and stuff like that. I like that idea. And I started getting into mechanical watches maybe like a year or eight months ago or something like that, where I was just like, wait, a watch can work without a battery? That's insane. That doesn't make any sense to me. I mean, how did clocks work before batteries? Obviously, this was a real thing for a long time, but for some reason, it just never occurred to me. And then one day I did. And then I was like infatuated. So like basically like what I learned, you know, is all the mechanical stuff, like how you can have a mechanical watch that you wind every day, like the clocks that you pull the cords on, the grandfather clocks and stuff like that. And you wind them and it creates tension in a spring and then stores that energy to then be used throughout the day. So I'm like, that's cool. And then like an automatic watch does the same thing, but it has a rotor on it that spins around when you move your arm. So you move your arm and it it starts spinning around, which tightens the spring, which stores the energy, which then uses the energy for the rest of the day. And I'm like, okay, this is really cool. I live near South Bend, Indiana. South Bend's like what I call like my home city. I'm like the suburbs of South Bend. It's not a big city, but that's what I would call it. So I have a bunch of South Bend stuff downstairs in the bar and stuff like that. And I was like, someone was like, well, you know, the, the South Bend had a watch company. And I was like, no. And so I went on eBay which I have not went on in like forever and but used my like really old Yahoo, whatever, something sign in and managed to get on eBay and found a South Bend watch that had been converted. They only made pocket watches from like 1902 to 1929. The Great Depression wiped them out for lots of reasons I won't bore you with right now. And what was really interesting is I found one in Ukraine, but basically this watch that was at one point, it was built in like over a hundred years ago. And it was a pocket watch. They converted it to a wristwatch. They made it like a skeleton. So you can look through it and you can literally see all the gears all the way through. And it's like completely custom, one of a kind. Like I was like in the couple hundred dollars range on eBay, like just not like an appreciation for it, like maybe 400 or something like that. And I was like, this is really cool. And I like sent it to a friend. I was like, dude, check this out. If you don't buy that, I'm buying that. So I immediately bought it because the gauntlet's been thrown down. So I bought this watch. So here's a watch that was built in South Bend. Indiana, less than five miles from where I live, where our office is, all that kind of stuff. At some point, I imagine, I mean, 1908. So it's like super old. At some point, it traveled across the ocean and ended up in Ukraine, where there's, I guess, a lot of conversion fourth generation watchmakers that just do custom crazy stuff for fun. And then to this person, and then I Googled and saw it and bought it. And now it's back, you know, five miles from where it was from. And I was like, I just kept thinking about it. I'm like, there's a high probability a soldier took this across and what happened? I mean, did they trade it? Did they lose it? Did they die? I mean, there's like all these questions and I was like, oh, I just wish I had the history, you know? That's what got me going on it. It's just like this history and every time a watch gets sold, the history is deleted. 
and you start all the way over. Unless it's like maybe like a father passing down to a son or daughter or something like that. Otherwise, you just you lose that history. And even then you lose a lot of that history. One of the watches that I have, I just saw a picture the other day of like me holding my son when he was born. And I was like, oh, I didn't even know I was wearing that watch. That was my first watch that I ever bought. But I happened to be wearing that when he was born. And now I'm like, I'm never getting rid of that watch. It's not an expensive watch, but I'm like, that watch will never go away because that's what I was wearing when I held him for the first time. So now it's, that's a moment that I want to like save with that watch. And like, if he gets that watch someday, I want him to know. However that, I don't know. So that's the whole idea of the watch archive was basically just like, what if there was something kind of like Instagram where it's basically just like photos and videos of your watches? You know, you have like watches in the rail sense and then watches have photos and videos. And then watches would also have moments like when so-and-so was born or I wore, like I got Olympic watch on today because it's opening ceremonies last night or whatever. And that idea just really fascinating to me. And I was like, okay, what if I just built it? And I asked a couple of watch people and they were like, it was like, it was mixed. It was like half were like, yeah, that's awesome. Other half were like, that's stupid. I don't I would never use that. So I have no idea if it's going to be anything, but like my ideal thing eventually is like you put in like a serial number and brand and you can basically do a check and you can say, was the watch stolen? Is this like a real watch? It's got like verification. What's the history that comes with it? Well, John Doe like wore it to World War One in 1912 and he was like in the battle of X and it fell out of his pocket and he never saw it again. And now I put in the serial number and this was John Doe's. I like history. I'm like into it. And so this is the thought of something that transfers that history across owners. I was like, I got to at least try and build something. And now I'm actually trying also unrelated to the app, trying to like revive South Bend Watch Company actually as a side project with a bunch of friends because there's all these old movements. And so I found a person that like converts them kind of like this. And this is what I used GoRails for was to learn how to like do like drag and drop with stimulus to reorder and stuff like that. So shout out there, Bob. I immediately like my friends were like, I want one. And then another friend was like, I want one. Now I've got like a wait list of like five or 10 people that want one, but they're just not enough out there. So I was like, all right, I'm just going to start scooping them up and start converting them. And like, I talked with this older person and they were like, this is awesome because like movements were sold separate from cases. So there's no purity break to like put a pocket watch in a wrist case because he was like, like South Bend Watch Company just sold the movement with the dial and stuff. The jeweler would combine it. And that was like a big marketing thing for them was it would be the combination of the two just for you. That's why you go to a jeweler. You don't buy these through the mail. I'll stop before I keep going on and on. But that's what kind of sucked me in is just the story and the history and like the potential for like tracking that over from person to person or like father to child or mother to child or like any of that kind of stuff. It just the craftsmanship, the stories, all that stuff is just sucked me in. I love this. I, I like I could listen to you talk about this for another hour. It's wild to think about how they even made this stuff over a hundred years ago already, which is crazy to think about. But the detail of all this, they were able to do that much precision back then with a fraction of the tools that they have now. This is super awesome. I don't know. My favorite thing is that was five miles away from where you are. That's amazing. You know, imagining where these went and everything is just super fascinating. I want one now too, but it's the kind of stuff that I agree with you. Like when you think about building software, there's so many decisions that are made and you end up with the feeling of using GitHub, but you don't have any idea really all the decisions that were made into making it work that way. But it's the same thing with a watch. At the end of the day, it tells the time, but you see the internals and you're like, holy cow, how did they decide that this gear needs to be this size? 
and it needs to be hollow in the middle and whatever. And that's so awesome. I love this stuff. The super crazy thing is these are both a hundred years old. They came delivered in freezing weather. I pulled them out of the box. They're cold to the touch. I cranked the winder and like they just started ticking. Wow. I mean, think about software. My oldest piece of software that's like still running is like maybe 15 years old or something, you know, and it's required some service every, you know, whatever, five or 10 years. But what are we working on right now that would last a hundred years? I can't say I'm working on anything that would last a hundred years. I like the opposite of it for me. It's like, I spend all this time building all these temporary ephemeral things. And I love the idea of something just lasting like forever. So yeah, it's super fascinating. I mean, there's even like the metals that they use. Like there's this little ticker that goes back and forth. And South Bend's big thing was like, they would actually freeze it in an ice block and show that it worked in freezing temperatures. And I was like, that's crazy. And I met with this older gentleman at the local library and he like told me all the history of all this stuff. And he's like, what they do is like, you know, certain metals will change sizes at different rates and different temperatures. So they actually mix two different, like one metal that like gets bigger when it's hot and one that gets like bigger when it's cold or, or at different rates so that in this huge temperature range, it will still work the exact same timing. I'm like, that's smarter than anything I've ever done. That's not even, <laughs> that's not even close. Like I've written some ridiculous memcache stuff, but no, it's nothing compared to that. Like that's just wild. Your memcache doesn't get bigger when the temperature gets hotter. There's no temperature adjustments. Yeah. That's too bad. Have you ever seen the, I'm sure you have being into watches, the clock of the long now. So it's this organization that thinking about things in similar terms of like, how do you build a clock that lasts for 10,000 years? And they're like making a clock and they have other things similar to that that are like, how do we preserve human languages and stuff like that? And that's something you'll have to check out because it is a super fascinating project. I'm sure you'll be down that rabbit hole for a while. Yeah, my <laughs> afternoon is ruined. I, I just love that the first question is, why build a giant clock? It's like, <laughs> You're like, I, mean, I feel like I would just be like, why not? I don't, you need to like, just put that. Like they got this nice paragraph. I'm like, no, don't talk about rare invitation to think. Just say, why not? We're going to build a big clock. Yeah, they're building it like in the side of a mountain and stuff. And it's like, if you can build a watch that lasts for a hundred years, but you can't build software that lasts for, you know, How do you keep that running? Like your operating system goes out of date, long-term support is gone after a couple of years or whatever. How do you build software that's still maintainable after a certain amount of time? People can build houses and whatever for a hundred years, but interior has to get gutted or whatever, but the framing or the exterior can last quite a long time. It is an interesting thing of software is changing so fast and Maybe this happened too with watches when they were first making them. Maybe they were like, all these things just were kind of function, but they weren't reliable. But then over time, these ones, the South Bend watches had really good quality that could last that long. I don't know. Maybe software will end up that way eventually. It'd be cool. That would be cool. Anyways. This is awesome. I really enjoyed this. Yeah, I did too. We should do it again. I recorded or not recorded. I don't even care. Like it was just, it's just fun to, to Are you chat, going to so. RailsConf? I don't even know where, when or where it is or anything. I haven't looked at it. So at this point, no, but <laughs> I also have young kids. I've got like three and six. And so I'm like, you know what? Like a couple more years, they'll be in school and stuff. And then I'll probably start going to conferences again. But at this point, I'm like, I'm just trying to make it through the day. I don't know what the next conference is. <laughs> Very accurate feelings. It was really nice, if nothing, just to meet you and hang out. 
we were talking 10 minutes before we started recording. We went to this like in-depth conversation about jQuery and JavaScript and the transition to Webpacker and off. And it was like, we should have just recorded this. So yeah, <laughs> this has been a lot of fun. Yeah, we'll have to do another one that's four hours long. Remote watches. Four I hours. love it. We might as well just be like, call it the Tim Ferriss show. <laughs> At that point, yeah. Jeez. John, where can people find you online? JohnNinnemaker.com. I'm sure you guys will have a link because no one can, it's too intimidating to spell that many letters. Or you can just search HTTP party, then you know my name. So, but yeah, JNNMaker everywhere. JNN is, I'm going to change all my usernames to JNN now. So, no, yeah, JNNMaker or JohnNinnemaker.com. Either one. Cool. Well, all right. Well, thanks for joining us. And to the other fellows, we will chat again next week. Sounds good. See ya. 